Welcome to Your Cyber Path, the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job by sharing the secrets of experienced hiring managers and top cybersecurity professionals with you. Now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Your Cyber Path. My name is Kip Boyle. Great to be here with you today. And uh, Jason Dion is here also. Hi, Jason. Hey, Kip. Great to be back. Yeah, thanks a lot. We are in the middle of a five-episode series recovering the CIANA <laughs> uh, sequence, which used to be called the CIA triad all by itself. But now we've added a couple of items to uh, the end of that triad. We're going to talk about the first one in our episode today. So today, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about uh, the N in the CIANA, and that's non repudiation, which I don't know if, if the folks uh, listening to this episode have ever heard that term, non-repudiation. It's really kind of like a techno weenie sort of a, of a term. <laughs> it's a very nerdy term. Uh, but, um, but, you know, let's talk about like, well, okay, if it's such a weird term, why, why are we talking about it? Like, what is this, Jason? Yeah, so when I hear the word non-repudiation, it just reminds me of one of those like fine dollar words that means something yeah. really simple, but people think of like, just using a complicated word, like quintessential, right? Like I hear that word and I'm like, what does that mean? And then you go, oh, it just means that's the perfect example of something, right? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely used. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so yeah, so, so if, if, when you think about words like that, sometimes it's just a really complicated word being something simple. And when I think of non-repudiation, it basically means can't say didn't do the thing that you did. Um, so let's say, you know, I went over to Kim's house tonight and I was really mad at him. So I decided to, uh, you know, put a flaming bag of dog poo on his door and ring the doorbell and run away. Um, he would never know it was me, right? But if I signed my name to that bang before I lit it on fire, then he would know Jason did it. I could say, <laughs> or yeah, I might think it, right? If my ring doorbell caught you. <laughs> yes, right. That's a detective control, though, in that case, that's, right? That's, um, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but that's, that's what we're talking about, right? When we talk about non-repudiation, it's when you take an action on a computer system, you can't say you didn't do it. And so this all goes into your auditing process and capturing who does what when in the system, journaling those things so we can go back and investigate them later if there's an issue. Yeah. And the way that we do non-repudiation is really with digital signatures uh, in most computer networks. And so we're going to dive into digital signatures and non-repudiation as, as we talk about this. Yeah. What do you think about when we think about non-repudiation? <laughs> well, you know, some common everyday examples I think would be very, very helpful um, other than the flaming bag of poo. <laughs> <laughs> So, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can tell. So uh, let's see if we can, you know, rein it in here a little bit. So when you get a delivery uh, and it's a high value item, let's say your next iPhone or, you know, you got yourself a nice laptop or something like that. Well, when FedEx or UPS brings it to your door, they're not going to just leave it at the stoop and walk away. They want a signature. And the reason they want that signature is because they want proof of delivery. They don't want anybody coming back to them and saying, you didn't deliver my thing, pay me for my lost, you know, uh, electronic item. So that's a, actually a form of non-repudiation. It's an analog form, but we've been doing that for years and years and years uh, is, you know, the, the delivery company just wants to be able to say, uh, you can't deny that we gave you this package over your door threshold. So that's a real life example where somebody else wants you to sign something because you know, they don't want you to get out of it. But can, Jason, can you think of a time when I would want non-repudiation for my benefit? Yeah. So, you know, one of the reasons I like to use non-repudiation is whenever I'm downloading a new application, 
right? So if I'm downloading a new app in the iPhone store, uh, in the App Store or Google Play Store, or even for Microsoft Store for Windows computers, uh, when you download that code, the first thing your system does is it checks that application package and verifies that it was digitally signed. And the reason they do that is because if anybody added any more ones and zeros, like some malware into that code, it's going to drastically change the hash value, which is made up by that digital signature. And so it'd be very quick and easy to see, hey, somebody messed with this, and this isn't the Angry Birds app you thought it was. This is actually Angry Birds that's going to hack your iPhone. And so you don't want to install that version, right? Right. A Angry yeah. Birds with, with bonus Trojan. <laughs> yeah, with bonus Trojan. Exactly, right? Uh, and so that's what we use code signing for. And code signing is literally just a hash of the software code itself when it's been compiled. And then they take that hash and they encrypt that hash with a private key, which then becomes this digital signature that gets appended to that package. It right. doesn't give us any confidentiality, but it does give us that integrity. Um, and then we get this non-repudiation because the developer can't say, I didn't do that code. I didn't put that Trojan in there. Well, it was signed with your key, buddy. So I guess you did, right? And yeah. figure that out. Yeah. So as, so as the person who downloads the app, I want the protection of knowing that what I, what I downloaded is exactly what I was trying to download. And I didn't get anything more than, than what I expected. That's a great example. And I think that you've done a wonderful job of kind of like moving us into the digital realm right from the physical analog realm so uh so let's let's keep going with uh before though i do want to mention one thing on code signing. Right? sure the common thing i see a lot of my security plus and CISA plus students that they get confused just because it's digitally signed does not mean it is a good program or that it's not malicious it just mm -hmm. means it was digitally signed and when it's digitally signed it means the person who made it signed it and said this is complete this is how it is but if I make a, a you know an Angry Birds with a Trojan and I sign it, um, you know, with a digital signature, it can still be code signed, but it it would be you know, my signature, not Angry Birds signature. So you should right. look that and see that. But just keep that in mind as well. Just because it's signed by the developer doesn't mean it's good. It just means it was delivered the way the developer intended. If that was a good thing, great. If it wasn't, you know, right. Well, because we've had some supply chain attacks recently, some very high profile ones where code was snuck in prior to it being digitally signed. And so the publisher ac accidentally signed something that had malicious intent in it. And so that's something that can happen. And we're trying to figure out how to deal with that now as an industry. And that's just why we have full employment for the rest of our lives, because <laughs> the bad people out there are constantly finding ways to circumvent the things we've put in place. Like we thought digital signatures were gonna, was going to take care of this. And they innovated and they went to another place we didn't expect and they found a way to work around it. Sometimes they just steal the signing keys outright. So that's another another exploit that can sometimes happen. Um, but never uh, security and whack-a-mole, right? As soon as we yeah, exactly. get all the work around against it, we have to up something new. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Let's talk about uh, some keywords, right? So uh, when I think of non-repudiation, some of the, you've already said some things I thought were uh, closely related, like a, a digital signature code signing, uh, hash value. What, what are some of the keywords, Jason? Yeah, I, I like to think about things like proofing or identity because you're proving your identity and saying, I did this thing and mm -hmm. the proof is there is that I did it. Um, I think about PKI because again, we're using public and private keys to do this code signing and to use non-repudiation as the most common digital form of non-repudiation is digital signatures. Um, and, and then, you know, again, like we said, digital signatures using that private key is really kind of yeah. the and butter when it comes to, to these, but it can be done yes. in the analog world, like you said, where, um, you know, I went to a, uh, I went to the Rocks for a picture show on, on Saturday night with, with my family <laughs> and I brought back to the time warp again. 
we went through the time warp again, right? And, uh, you know, uh, my wife, Tamara, and my, my kid, Alex, they were both, uh, you know, Rock's War virgins. And so when you came in, they said, oh, hey, are you fit before? You were? Okay. They put a V on your forehead. So they know the best <laughs> person, right? Uh, I wanted in. It was being shown at, at this, you know, bar club place. They checked everybody's ID and said, you know, are you old enough to come in? Are you the person who bought that ticket? And so I had to say, I'm Jason. I bought the ticket. I'm over 18. Okay, you can come in. And so that's another way to do identity proofing. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's by showing your driver's license saying, I am Jason and I bought the ticket and they match. So you can let me in. Right. Because the assumption is, just like with the di- digital signing of the software code, that a driver's license or a state ID is, a, uh, is reliable, that it's not going to be something that somebody makes in their basement. And so that's why everybody trusts it. And so that's a good analog for what we would maybe talk about as an X509 certificate, right? Is that, you know, this here's this document, this digital document that has an identity in it, that somebody verified it, it's now signed. And so you can think of that as like a digital driver's license for a server or a person or a machine or a device. Anyway, now I'm really starting to unpack this topic. I'm going to just pull myself back for a second. But before we go on, I want to uh, make sure people know, you said PKI, and that stands for Public Key Infrastructure. And uh, so I just wanted to make sure that we did that we did an, an acronym, uh, you know, blow up there. So so we've talked about what non-repudiation actually is right now, since we're talking about high, you know, getting a job and going through an interviewing process, um, what kind of questions do you think the candidate might expect to hear with respect to non-repudiation, Jason? What like give us give us an idea. Yeah, I mean, the, the first one is going to be just really easy softball, right? Hey, Kip, what does non-repudiation mean to you? Right? Something like that. <laughs> right. It, it means that I get my iPhone from my UPS guy. <laughs> yeah. A little, <laughs> it's be like, a little more. What? what? <laughs> what would you answer me if I asked you, what yeah. is non-repudiation? <laughs> yeah, I, I, would, I wouldn't just drop the UPS bomb and smile at the guy. That's not the, yeah. that's not the <laughs> way to do it. But what I would say is, is it's a way of proving that something is what it is and nothing more and nothing less. And it could be based on a digital signature so that I know something has been changed from the time it was signed to the time that I receive it. Yeah, I, I think that's a great answer. You know, short, sweet, to the point. The only thing I might add, uh, I tend to like to give analogies when I give answers like that. So I would probably use the UPS guy as my analogy. Like, okay. you know, in the real world, if I mail a letter using certified mail to ensure that the person received it, they have to sign and I get a return receipt. Yeah. They yes, they received that. And therefore, they can't say they never received the package, right? Boy, uh, I, I really want to affirm that. I think as a hiring manager, it's very valuable when somebody can give me an analogy, particularly when it's in a different context. That really makes the case that you understand what the heck you're talking about. So if you can do that, I you know don't use the the word to define itself. Give us give us an example. I yes, I think that's fantastic. Um, Another question you might expect uh, to get, which is going to be a little bit more advanced and may or may not show up depending on the job that you're applying for, right? So, but it could be something like, how can a software company provide non-repudiation for their code when they're distributing it? Now, we've already talked about this, you know, that they're, that they're using uh, digital uh, encryption in order to uh, sign the code. But Jason, you're all over this. So tell us again how you would answer this question. Okay, so if I'm putting on my Jason the interviewee hat, uh, I would say, well, a lot of software companies use code signing as a way to provide non-repudiation for their code. When they're done creating their code, 
and it's gone through the software uh, validation process and software testing process in the software development lifecycle, we get to the point where we're ready to distribute it. And as we get ready to distribute it, we're going to create a hash value of that code as it currently exists. We'll compile the software, create the hash value of that, and then we will digitally take that uh, hash value and encrypt it using the company's private key that is the known good private key for this corporation. And because only our corporation has that private key, only we can sign that code. And that means the code is the same way it was when we distributed it as the time it re is received by the end user. And that's how we end up using code signing as a method of doing digital signatures with thumb repudiation to, to achieve that goal. That's great, Jason. Thank you. Now I have a follow-up question. So Hello. if I receive, if I receive this signed code, well, I don't have the private key of the organization that distributed it. So how do I know that it's, what do I do? What do I need in order to be able to test this code to find out if the signature is valid? Yeah, so to be able to test the code and verify that it's valid, you're going to use the public key for that organization. And because it's public, it exists out on the internet. So whichever organization created that public-private key pair, for example, Verisign is one of the most common ones, uh, I would go into Verisign's server and say, hey, I need the public key for kipsoftwarecompany.com, and they'll give that to me. Once I have that, I can then do a hash value of the binary that I downloaded, and I will then unencrypt the digital signature, which I have from the code signing, and I'll compare those two. If the two values match, that means nothing's changed in the code and that this code, it has good integrity and we know that it came from kipsoftwarecompany.com and therefore it's valid. Perfect, right. And, and, uh, and scene, what I was trying to do there, right, is kind of get to the idea that in order for this to work, you have a private key that nobody except the author of the software has access to but then you have a public key that everybody in the world needs to have access to in order for them to actually check that the dig digital signature is, is valid, okay? So that's, that's a little like practical application of public-private key encryption. So uh, this stuff really does happen in the real world. And oftentimes these code signing public keys are actually going to be pre-distributed to you in the operating system that you install. So like Windows, for example, already has the public keys for Microsoft software embedded inside of it so that you don't actually have to physically go out and, and retrieve it. But if you did buy KIPP software, I probably don't have the, uh, you know, the clout to get Microsoft to put my public key in as a, uh, a pre-installed uh, certificate. So yeah, so in that case, you might have to go and, and fetch my public key. But, but the nice thing is most of the operating systems and the app stores already have that happening in the background. So you wouldn't necessarily have to go to Kip's website to download his public key because it's already in, if I got your software through Google Play, right. App Store, uh, the iTunes App Store, or Microsoft Store, all of those already use digital signatures. And we call those our developer keys. Once you create a developer account, you get the key and you can then use that to do all your digital signature. Right. Uh, if you're going to use something like, um, you know, pretty good privacy or GPG instead, then you're going to have to actually physically download my public key because there's no centralized server. That's a right. decentralized method of public key. Yeah, and you might run into that if you're going to download a piece of code off of like GitHub or something like that, right? Where you're going to download a pre-compiled binary, but you're going to check it to make sure that nobody has actually spiked it with a Trojan or some other piece of malicious code. And that's a very manually intensive process typically. So, okay, now um, we talked about hashing uh, as a function. But in order to, to, to either calculate a hash, uh, well, I guess if you're going to verify a hash, you're going you're gonna to just generate a new hash and compare them. But how, how does that actually work, Jason? How do you actually 
do that? How do you actually calculate the hash value? Yeah, so a hash value is simply an encryption algorithm. But what makes it special is that it takes a variable length input and it creates a fixed length output. So even if I take, uh, you know, a really long book like the dictionary or the Bible or the Encyclopedia Britannica, and I put it through this hashing algorithm, I'm still going to get the exact same uh, size value on the outside. So if I'm using something like MD5, I'm going to get 128-bit hash. If I'm using uh, SHA-1, I'm going to get 160-bit hash. SHA-2, I'm going to get a 256-bit hash as my result. And even if I have one character or a million characters, it's going to create the same length on the outside. So I can take whatever thing I want and put it through this hash and always get a unique individual fingerprint that I can use to identify that file. And I know on a previous episode, you know, going back a couple of weeks, we talked about integrity. Um, we, we delve really deep into integrity and hashing back then as well. Um, yeah. So that's another one. If you ever listened to that episode, I recommend going back and listening to it. But that's the basics of how a hash works. Oh, so so that, why is there... Why is there multiple hashing algorithms? Yeah. Like so you just named off three of them. Why do we need three? Yeah, there, there's more than three, but those are the three most common ones, right? And now, uh, really what it comes down to is the longer your key, the fixed length output, uh, which is not the key, sorry, the fixed length output, the hash value, the hash digest, the longer that is, the stronger that algorithm is considered. So if I have mm -hmm. something like MD5 and I have 128 bits as my output, there's an infinite number of inputs because I can have every movie, every file, every every letter, every one and zero in the world mm -hmm. will create a unique hash value. But there's only two to the 128 individual values that we have. And because of that, we have what's known as collisions. That's where you take the same thing, uh, you know, take two different things and get the same result. So for instance, if I walked into a classroom, uh, I used to be a college professor. Um, if I walked into a classroom with 30 people, the chances are, if I asked if people had the same birth month, lots of people had the same birth month. If I ask, hey, who, was, who else was born on the same day as John or Mary? Generally, there's going to be at least two people in the class that share a birthday if you have 22 or more people. Um, not the same year, but the same month and day. And we call that the birthday, uh, the birthday paradox or the birthday collision. And yeah. this is how you can see how, you know, because there are only 365 days possible for people to have birthdays. Uh, and if I put 22 people over in a room, the chances are two of them are going to match up. Uh, there's a greater than 50% chance the two of them will match up. And, and so that's why we have this thing called a collision. Mm. What ha what's happening is because we can create these collisions at hash values by having two different inputs creating the same output, I might have a no good file that is digitally signed with MD5 hash that says, this is Kip's good program file digitally signed. I say, wonderful. Let me go and create another file that will have the same exact hash digest, but it includes Kip's code and some Trojans and some other white space until I can get it so I get the exact same hash value. And if I do that, I can then put my malicious code out there and people will download it thinking it's Kip's good software, but it's actually a hacked version that I created. But even though it'll generate the same hash. Exactly, right? And so this becomes what we know as a collision. And because we kept having these collisions with MP5, we moved to something stronger, which was SHA-1, because we go from 128 bits to 160 bits, which means we have a lot more uh, unique values. But again, that wasn't enough. So we went to 256. And then 384 and then 512, we keep adding more. And the longer the hash digest on the outside is, the, the, the less likely it is to have collisions from what you generate. And, and so that's why, you know, we have these weaker hashing algorithms like MD5 that we don't want to use anymore because they are weak and they're, they are vulnerable to this collision or birth, we call this the birthday attack. Uh, right, right. Birthday attack happening against. I think you explained it very, very well. And if anybody gets this question on your interview, just 
listen to the <laughs> listen to what Jason said again because he did a great job answering the question and then the follow up question uh, that I gave him. Now I want to do a uh, uh, a check on a couple of of acronyms that we use. So MD five stands for with message digest, right? Number five, digest version five, which version five, which is a hundred twenty eight bit hash algorithm. Yes. So we used to have like MD one, MD two, MD three, and all that stuff is rubbish. Don't ever use any MDX. Don't do it because it's just as you've learned. It's gameable, right? So you don't want to do that. Now, this SHA-1 that Jason said, that, that's S-H-A, right? So that's an, uh, an acronym, but it means Secure Hash Algorithm Version 1. So we've got SHA-1, SHA-2, and presumably, you know, SHA-3. Like, there's going to be a whole series of them. And as computing power gets, uh, gets uh, better and greater, we're probably going to have to just continue to produce uh, new versions of the secure hash algorithm to be able to resist uh, attacks in the future that are not feasible today. So that's just uh, another, you know, kind of uh, characteristic of, of this work that we do is that things are always changing. Okay. Yeah, and the one thing with uh, Shaw that I will mention is that Shaw 1 was Shaw version 1 and is a 160-bit hash algorithm. Shaw 2 is Shaw version 2, and it starts with a 256-bit algorithm uh, or hash digest, but there are other versions of SHA-2 that have 384, 512, and so there are some longer bit sizes, but how do them is still the same. Uh, it hasn't necessarily mean that we've got to do SHA-3 or SHA-5 or SHA-10 yet, but we're, we're getting there as we keep moving down the road. And there's some other ones out there like WriteMD uh, and, and some others that are out there, but the most common you're going to come across these days is definitely SHA-2 with the 250 hash And one day you might be asked to recommend a an algorithm like hey we we're building some new product we need some you know we need to generate digital signatures hey kip you're the cybersecurity expert in the company what algorithm should we be using don't give a snap answer go into the research first because what you thought worked this morning when you got up might have been broken by lunchtime so <laughs> uh it's just sometimes it, it can move that fast so it's, just be careful and know that there's all kinds of choices and you want to be careful which one you recommend because you want to you want to recommend something that's going to last a long time but not be too computationally intensive. There's just all kinds of engineering uh, issues there. Yeah, right. Because if you want ultimate security, the system would be super expensive and super slow. Um, yeah. But if you want ultimate usability, your security really sucks. And so yep. it is always this balance and this trade-off. We're building a lot of software at DL training right now. Uh, and we use a lot of different hashing algorithms as ways to store passwords and other data and encrypting things and decrypting things. And it is always a trade-off because yeah. if you want everything at the highest level. It would cost us a lot more in compute time uh, and to, yep. to make more risk decisions. Yeah. So it's fascinating once you start to apply these things. But the first thing you have to do is know what they are. So we're glad you were here today to uh, to listen to us, do our very best to explain to you what is non-repudiation, how does it work in the real world, analog and digital versions. And I don't think there's anything more we have to add. I don't know. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I think we did a really good job of covering this whole idea of non-repudiation. And, and really, you know, the takeaways for the audience, uh, if you're new to cybersecurity, is just remember, when we talk about non-repudiation, there's the no in there, and it means you can't say, no, I didn't do it, right? So non-repudiation means you can't say you didn't do something because we have proof you did. That, that's the whole concept of non-repudiation. That can be done analog with the signature, digitally with code signing or digital signatures, things like that. Uh, and usually we're going to use these with hashing. And as we said, in fact, in the integrity episode, hashing is one of these things that's used in both places. 
Um, and so because of that, you are going to see a lot of overlap between I and CIA and the N in CIA-NA uh, for integrity and non-repudiation. Uh, so that being said, you know, I want to thank you all for, for joining us for yet another episode of Your Cyber Path. Um, and I hope you uh, come over to yourcyberpath.com to learn more about our new uh, Your Cyber Path Pro uh, mentorship program that we have. It is a 12-month program, and you will get a ton of value in this to help you either uh, advance in your current career or move into a new cybersecurity career. And Kip and I would love to work with you uh, in, in a more high-tech manner uh, instead of a, a one-to-many. Our voices over the podcast, we'd love to work with you individually, uh, jump up some Zoom calls with you and figure out exactly uh, where you are, where you want to be in your career. And, and the best way to do that is through YCP Pro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we want you to kill it. We want to see you out there succeeding. We want you to have amazing jobs, doing phenomenal work, making a big difference, having all this purpose in your in the in your day job, right? In the in the things that you do, it could just make everything so much better for you. Uh, uh, anyway, I could go on and on and on, but I think that's a wrap. Um, okay, see you all next time. See you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Your Cyber Path. Don't miss an episode. Press the subscribe button now. If you would like to learn more about how to get your dream cybersecurity job, then be sure to visit yourcyberpath.com where you can access the show notes, search the archive of our top tips and tricks, and discover some fantastic bonus content.